You are listening to a message from the Living Word community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. Thanks, Dan. Doesn't seem like that many years ago. I guess uh, if I started when I was in my mid, in my mid-30s, it must be at least five years since uh, since all as that has passed. So, uh, but it is really a privilege and a joy to be able to share the word of the Lord with you this morning. And I I just wanted to mention again how refreshing it is to worship the Lord with you all. You know, the Scripture says, "Let everything that has breath praise the Lord." And we, have, we praise the Lord in a lot of ways, with a conga drum and with a flute and with guitars and uh, with dance and with banners and flags and all kinds of things. And those things are wonderful. But the most precious instrument still is the human voice. And uh, all of us have worshipped the Lord in that way and sung to him. And it's just really refreshing. Uh, it's like uh, water in a dry and weary land. You know, the, David says, my, my soul is parched and thirsty for you. And... I don't know about you, but I, I hate heat and humidity. You know, I'm already uh, up to here with this, uh, with this heat wave, and we're still in the middle of it. Uh, but, you know, one blessing about really hot, humid weather is it, it makes you think scripturally in a way, because there's a lot of, um, you know, the, in, in the Middle East, a hot, dry, weary land, um, there's so many analogies in the scriptures and so many invitations that Jesus makes, like in John 7, 37, where he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That sounds pretty good on a day like today, doesn't it? And uh, but he's, this he spoke of the spirit who those he, who believed in him were to receive. So good thing about the heat and humidity and this drought all over the world. We have it mild compared to the way they have it in uh, many places in the world, like it's particularly in uh, the Horn of Africa, and uh, Southern Europe and other places, we have it really easy and mild, but it reminds us how, how thirsty we are, how much we need the Lord, and how, what a privilege it is to worship the Lord and drink of him spiritually. Amen? Praise the Lord. Well, I'm going to uh, open the scriptures with you this morning uh, from the book of Deuteronomy. And if you have a Bible and you'd like to grab it now, that would be wonderful, because we're going to be sharing from Deuteronomy chapter 10. The fifth book, the tenth chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 10. And I know some of you may be thinking, wait, didn't we finish reading the book of Deuteronomy several weeks ago? And uh, you may be right. My brother Carl preached a powerful message a few weeks ago about uh, the cities of refuge uh, in the book of Deuteronomy and how Jesus fulfills those. And uh, I got kind of jealous and I thought, look, Carl got a chance to preach from Deuteronomy and I didn't. So this is my chance to, to try to catch up and drag you all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. So we're going to be looking at a passage in Deuteronomy 10 this morning. But last week, if you were here, you know that we were not in Deuteronomy, but uh, we were looking at, instead at 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And the Lord spoke a really powerful and clear word to us then about God's grace and his generosity toward us. And Paul says there that you know the grace of the Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And the Lord was exhorting us through our brother Dave, uh, through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, uh, to, the, the, to sow bountifully. Because if we sow sparingly, we'll reap sparingly. But if we sow bountifully, 
will reap bountifully so. Just want to remind you of the word that the Lord spoke to us last week. Today I want to talk to you about second chances. Second chances. Have you ever needed one? Has there, can you think about a time in your life when you really blew it and you said, boy, I wish I could do that over again. I wish I'd, uh, it, or, or maybe, it's, maybe it was a sin, maybe it was a failure, maybe it was an error in judgment, but where you really botched something up royally and you say, I'd like to have that one back again. And in, in golf, they call that a mulligan. If you hit a really bad stroke, uh, sometimes they'll, your fellow golfers will let you t take a mulligan, which is do it over again. Our God is a God who gives us second chances. He doesn't blow us away when we make a mistake or when we sin or when we deviate from his course. And Deuteronomy chapter 10 is about a powerful second chance that God gave to Israel. And you may remember uh, it, the, 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 the uh, events are recorded in Exodus and rehearsed for us again in Deuteronomy that uh, God had called Moses up onto the mountain and uh, the people were gathered around the base of the mountain and the Lord spoke powerfully and audibly uh, out of a fire and out of gloom. And he spoke in the hearing of all the people, the Ten Commandments. And then he wrote them on tablets of stone, two tablets of stone. And he gave them to Moses to take down to the people the Ten Commandments of the Lord about how Israel was to live. While, while they were waiting for him to come down, they got tired. They thought Moses had take, was taking too long. So right away, almost immediately after the Ten Commandments were spoken and written, they broke the first two commandments. They, com they, they committed idolatry. They made another god. And according to Aaron's strange account of the incident, they, they threw their gold into the fire, and this golden calf sprang out. And so they had to worship it. And Aaron said, that, Behold your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So Moses, hurrying down from the mountain, was appalled, as God himself was appalled, by this immediate breaking of the first two commandments. And he was furious, as God was furious. And he took the two tablets that he had just received from the Lord, and he cast them down onto the ground and shattered them, and they broke. That's where we pick up the story. And uh, if you have a Bible, uh, I want to take a look at Deuteronomy Chapter 10. At that time, Deuteronomy 10.1, the Lord said to me, this is Moses speaking, the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two tablets of stone like the former ones and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood for yourself. I will write on the tablets the words that were written on the former tablets which you shattered and you shall put them in the ark. So I, Moses, made an ark of acacia wood and cut out two tablets of stone like the former ones, and I went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And God wrote on the tablets, like the former writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark which I had made. And there they are, as the Lord commanded me. A second chance. 
God could have destroyed them, the people of Israel, after the abomination of the golden calf and after the carousing, the anger that made Moses cast down the tablets. But instead he said, no, I will give them a second chance. And that's what this is about. And God did, did, did some amazing things that we've just read in the opening verses of Deuteronomy chapter 10. The first thing he did was in, on the mountain was he spoke the Ten Commandments. And then he wrote them down. Then he did it again and gave them uh, back to Moses to take down to the people. And there, there are two extraordinary things which we sometimes may take for granted about the Lord. And the first is, he is a God who speaks. Not all religions have this, you know. The, the, the religion of most of the people that I know, my acquaintances, friends in the world, neighbors, people on the block, people that don't know Jesus, is, is a kind of a, a, a vague agnosticism, and people don't, don't know if there's a God out there or not, but one thing they do know is that they personally are very spiritual. Have you met people like this? A lot of times when we talk to people about the Lord right outside this building during evangelism, we find that people say, I don't know about God very much, but I myself am a very spiritual person. What that is is a religion with a God who doesn't say anything, he doesn't speak. It's just you going by, by personal spiritual feelings somewhere deep within, with inside. And uh, that's a religion of a God that doesn't speak. But this is a really ancient idea. And uh, of course, uh, the nations all around, in Canaan, all around Israel, were also uh, ruled by idols that didn't speak. And the Lord, through Isaiah, makes fun of them. And he says, the, these idols, they have eyes, but they can't see, and ears, but they can't hear, and, and mouths, but they don't make a sound with them. And he says, everyone who trusts in them will become like them. That's what it's like to serve a God who doesn't speak. But I, the Lord, Yahweh, he, he speaks. And not only does he speak, another thing that's extraordinary is he writes down the things he said. God not only spoke the Ten Commandments and they heard with their ears, but he wrote them down and, and put them on tablets of stone and gave them to them, gave the, the tablets to him a God who speaks, a God who writes. Writing is not something that every culture has. There have been many cultures and many times in history and even uh, cultures that are uh, on the earth today that don't have writing. And uh, my, when, my, when my son was a kid, uh, one of his favorite um, books was called, uh, uh, one of his favorite movies was called The Dark Crystal. It was by Jim Henson, the guy that did the Muppets. And uh, the, 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 the protagonist of The Dark Crystal is, telling, is talking to a woman from a culture where there is no writing. And she says, well, what is writing? And he says, writing is words that stay. Words that stay. And God has given us words that stay. Isn't that a blessing? When God gave Moses the, ten, the commandments the second time and, 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 and told him to come down from the mountain, he, he, he told him specific instructions about what to do with them and where to put them. He said, I want you to make an ark of acacia wood, and I want you to put the tablets in the ark. And um, I don't know if, if you're familiar with acacia wood, but my brother Carl found us a picture of acacia wood. And there's, a, there's a, some, a, a furniture made of acacia wood. It's a very, very beautiful and precious wood, acacia wood. Uh, acacia trees grow many places around the world, but especially in Africa and in the Middle East. It's a precious wood, and it, when it's worked, it's very beautiful. You can see the beautiful grain that's in this acacia wood. 
And uh, so the Lord told Moses, when you get these tablets the second time, put them in an ark made of acacia wood. Uh, Josh and Alexi Callan have, uh, I think, a chest made of acacia wood. Beautiful, beautiful wood when it's worked and stained and um, beautiful. And, and I'm sure they'd ha be happy for you to go over to their house and look at it. So uh, anytime, go anytime and, and ask to see the acacia wood. But the acacia, acacia wood is, is extremely durable and beautiful, but it is perishable. And the source of acacia wood is a particular tree called the acacia tree. And I think uh, we also have a picture of that. This is a great picture. Thanks, Carl, for finding that. This is an acacia tree. And uh, this is where that beautiful wood comes from, the wood that Moses was instructed to use by the Lord to make an ark. And uh, you see these a lot uh, on the African savanna. My very favorite TV show uh, features, features an acacia tree. It's called Nature. It's a PBS special. It goes on for about an hour, usually on Monday nights. It's called Nature. And it shows a leopard uh, climbing up into an acacia tree or down from an acacia tree. And uh, so um, acacia trees, can we look at that? Here we go, thanks. Um, acacia trees are really, uh, are typically uh, have a, a tall columnar uh, trunk and then um, many feet from the ground. They spread out into this broad canopy that's uh, really a critical thing uh, in the African savanna. It provides shade uh, for the grazers of the African savanna and um, it also is a great water storage source. Acacia trees store water and they, they are a blessing to the, to the grazers uh, of the African savanna who need that. The problem for a lot of the grazers is the branches start pretty high up and they can't reach them. But there is one animal who's tall enough. Any guess who that is? This is the one grazer. Did you ever wonder why God gave giraffes long necks? It wasn't so they would look cool, although they do look really cool. But giraffes are especially adapted to, gra to graze on the leaves of the acacia tree, which are rich in water. And God also gave giraffes a, a, a tongue that's 18 inches long. And uh, so they can, they can take full advantage of these wonderful succulent leaves of, of the acacia tree. Thanks for providing those great pictures, Carl. But um, what is it that's so special about acacia wood. You may know if you've read uh, Exodus and uh, Leviticus and other books in the Pentateuch that the acacia wood was used for many articles of worship uh, within the tabernacle and the temple and often it was overlaid with pure gold so a very precious wood and, and a key thing in worship. But what for us is special about acacia wood? Before I answer that, just a, a couple of questions, a couple of, of quick uh, comments still about um, Deuteronomy, these verses that we have read in the opening chapters of Deuteronomy. The, Moses brought the tablets down. He wrote them. A, a God not only spoke the words, but he wrote them down. And it's highly significant that God writes because what's this thing you have in your hand? Now, if you're sitting at home, you might have a, a coffee cup in your right hand, but the thing in your left hand that hopefully you're using, uh, it, this, this, the word Bible uh, comes from a Greek word, biblios, which means the books. God has given us books, things that he's written, and uh, there are 66 precious books that the Lord has given to us, and um, they're, they're also, of course, referred to as the scriptures, and the scriptures just simply means the stuff that's written down, the stuff that God took the time to write down and he inspired men to write. And um, those are the scriptures. And uh, it's, a, it's a privilege to be a people 
who have the scriptures. Do you write things down? Do you ta ever take a, a pen and a piece of paper or, or maybe electronically you write something down? I write stuff down a lot, uh, especially I, l I write to myself notes, often on scraps of paper. People that know me well laugh at me about this. But the reason I write stuff down a lot is because I have a horrible memory. And if I don't make lists of things I'm, I have to do, then I'll forget them. Of course, sometimes even with the lists, I forget the stuff I have to do. But um, at least it helps me a little bit if I write stuff down. So I write stuff down, maybe some of you do, and, and God writes stuff down too. But the Lord does not write things down because he's afraid he might forget. The Lord writes stuff down because he's afraid we might forget. And that's why God writes, and that's why we have the scriptures. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, you know, he, he constantly referred to two authorities. One was the Father himself. I see the things I see. I do the things I see my Father doing. And the other was the scriptures. As the scriptures says, it is written to the devil in the wilderness, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of of the Lord. And that's a quote from two chapters earlier than we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. The, the, the Lord says this, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of God's mouth. And what, the, what Moses says there in Deuteronomy 8, 3 is, is very significant. He says, the Lord led you through the wilderness. He let you be hungry. He humbled you. He, humbled you. he fed you with manna that you did not know. Why did he do all that? so that he might make you understand that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. That's what the Lord was doing back in Deuteronomy, and that's why he wrote those things down and gave them to us. God is a God who gives his people second chances, and that's what this, this passage in Deuteronomy is about. The Lord always, uh, he loves in his grace and in his mercy when we screw up and sin and fail him to give us a second chance. And, and this book is rife with the stories of men and women to whom God in his grace and mercy gave second chances to. Think about King David, horrible sin with Bathsheba and with Uriah, her husband. Did God wipe him out? Was he finished with him? No, he gave him another chance. I was thinking about Job, you know, a man who was the wealthiest, most prosperous person of his day, and uh, he lost everything. He lost his family, he lost all of his riches, and then he even lost his own health, and he was reduced to sitting in an on an ash heap and scraping open boils with a potsherd, a man who lost everything. Was God done with him? Or did God give him a second chance? If you read the end of the book of Job, you know things turned, turned out okay for him. The Apostle Paul, a violent aggressor, persecutor of the church, self-described as the foremost of sinners. Did, did, did God say, I've had it up to here with him and, and wipe him out? God gave him a second chance and powerfully transformed him. I'd like to ask you to turn with me to another passage, and it's Luke chapter 22. Please turn with me in your Bible to 22, Luke chapter 22. 
takes me a lot longer in the in the uh, Kindle to get to uh, a scripture than it does in the real Bible, in the paper Bible. <clears throat> Luke chapter 22, I'm going to start to read at about verse 31, Luke 22:31. This is another story about someone who got a second chance, and I think it's one that you'll be familiar with. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Before Jesus' betrayal and arrest, he said to his, he warned his disciples, and he said, all of you are going to fall away because of me. And there was one, particularly, one particular disciple who objected to that, and he said, although all the rest fall away, I never will. And Jesus had a specific word for him. Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But Peter said to Jesus, Lord, with you I am ready to go to both to prison and to death. And Jesus said to him, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. I can only begin to imagine how devastating this news was to Peter. Peter, of all people, to hear this from the Lord Jesus. He who had devoted his whole life to Jesus, the defining characteristic of Peter's character was loyalty to the Lord Jesus. You're going to deny three times that you even know me. How devastating. That must have been to him. How cut low he must have felt. How, how, how much of a failure. How at the end of himself Peter must have felt during that time. Can you think of a time in your life when you really, really seriously sinned and failed the Lord and did something that you knew was wrong in his sight? probably wasn't as bad as what Peter did. But you know, it's funny the way our hearts are. We always tend to see other people's sin as being bigger than ours. And we always tend to, to say, well, what I did, you know, wasn't really that bad. Other people have done things that were worse. And uh, we can sometimes excuse ourselves and get ourselves a little bit off the hook with that kind of thinking. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that there are little sins and big sins? Or is sin, sin? In the Ten Commandments, one of the ones that, that Moses gave to the people was the Seventh Commandment, which is this, you shall not commit adultery. What did Jesus say about the Seventh Commandment? He said, Moses said to you, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you even look on a woman uh, to lust after her, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. How easy it is to look at someone else's sin and see it as being greater than our own. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Did anything like this ever happen before in the scriptures? I don't know if you're like me, but I was thinking of Job. In the very beginning of the book of Job, toward the beginning of the book of Job, 
Satan comes to, comes to God and he asks for permission uh, to attack Job, first to take away all of his possessions and his family, and then to take away his actual health. And as I mentioned, Job finds himself sitting on the ash heap, scraping his itchy boils and having nothing left and no hope left. Why did the Lord allow that? Why did Satan get permission to do that to Job? Why did Jesus tell, tell Peter, Satan's demanded permission to sift you like wheat? Why did God allow the, the enemy to do that? I don't really know. In God's sovereignty, he makes the decisions, not us. One thing I do know is that he causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. And even Satan, the prince of darkness, the roaring lion that we talk about a lot in those, in those terms, he's only a, a little pawn in the purposes of God. And God can use even him to bring about sanctification and holiness and character and his purposes in the lives of, of people like Job and people, people like Peter and people like you and me. He's demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But Jesus said, to, said this to Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Here's the key issue, brothers and sisters. Where is your faith in the time of failure, in the time of great sin on your part, in the time of devastation, in the time when God seems to have given the dev devil permission to run, run roughshod over you? Where's your faith? Is it possible to lose your faith at a time like that? The answer, I think, is yes. One of the greatest tragedies in the universe is someone who's, who loses their faith. Have you ever known anyone like that? It's, a, it's very, very sad to watch. I had a teacher in college, a great, uh, a wonderful literature teacher, who um, started out not as a professor of literature, but as a, a pastor. And when he was a young pastor, he was ardently shepherding a, a small uh, group of believers. And a young couple came to him with a, with a young daughter who had been diagnosed with serious cancer. Not sure if it was leukemia or some other kind of cancer that affects young children. And so this young pastor uh, prayed fervently with them and believed the Lord with, the, with this couple to heal that precious little girl. He didn't. Instead, the Lord took her life. He took her home to be with him. And this young pastor was devastated. And he changed, he, he, he forsook the pastorate and instead uh, went into teaching. And um, he said, you know, I, I just can't serve and believe in a God who is good, who would take away this precious little girl from the parents, her parents who loved her. This is a man whose faith failed. His faith failed, and it was, it was a tragedy. And I knew him many years after the incident, and he was really a, a sad person, although he was a, a, a really good teacher. But this is what Jesus prays for Peter, that your faith may not fail. And he says this to them, this to him, once you've turned, strengthen your brothers. Let's read about um, the fulfillment of Jesus' words at the end of the chapter, Luke chapter 22. What happened as a result of the prediction that Jesus made about what would happen to Peter? 
Flip, flip ahead uh, several uh, verses in Luke chapter 22 um, to, uh, I guess, in the 50s. Um, where are we? Um, okay, maybe about uh, verse 54, Luke 22, verse 54. What happens is that, as you remember, maybe, um, Jesus is betrayed by Judas and arrested and taken into the, the, the courtyard of the high priest to begin his trial. And uh, Peter is following at a distance. And in verse 55, it says that after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting down among them, verse 56, Luke 22. And a servant girl, seeing Peter as he sat in the firelight, was looking intently at him and said, this man was, was with him too. But Peter denied it. He's saying, woman, I don't know you. I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, you are one of them all too. But Peter said, man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another began to insist, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he also is a Galilean. And Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediately, while Peter was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny three times, deny me three times. And Peter went out and he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. It's hard to imagine betraying Jesus and sinning that bad. And it's hard to imagine the grief and the pain of soul that Peter must have felt in that moment of his, his deep sin and his betrayal. Jesus just turned. Apparently, they were within visual distance there in the courtyard of the high priest, and he just looked at him. In a way, I think it might have been a little easier if Jesus had started jumping up and down and waving his hands saying, how could you do that, Peter? How could you deny me? Don't you remember what I told you about the rooster? How could, how could you do that? But he didn't do that. He just turned and he looked at Peter. The eyes of Jesus, so often filled with compassion and love and mercy. The eyes that can look into our very souls the eyes that the Apostle John in the Revelation describes as being like a flame of fire. And the writer of the Hebrews says, all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And Jesus just looks at Peter and he goes out as a result of that. And a tiny little tear forms on Peter's cheek and he takes it and dabs it away with his hanky and he says, well, that's done with. I guess I'll go back to the fishing nets. Is that what happened? He wept bitterly, totally devastated. This is the effect of sin. It's the effect of all sin, I believe. Small sins and great sins. Because what you're doing when you sin, what Peter did, uh, what Paul did, what David did, what Israel did is, den is deny that you know the Lord. 
So next time the devil comes to you and tempts you in the areas where you're weak, and, and he knows and you know and the Lord knows where they are, so you should be ready. And he comes to you and says, wouldn't it be nice right now to just uh, to start to criticize that person behind their back? Wouldn't that feel good? And, or, or to look lustfully at that person or, or to take something that doesn't really belong to you or, or to covet something that someone else has that the Lord hasn't given you. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that feel, wouldn't that, isn't that juicy? Wouldn't that, doesn't that charm you? Doesn't that appeal to you? What you can do is you can say, try, and try doing this. I choose now in doing this sin to say, I don't know who Jesus is. I deny that I even know him. And now I'm free to do that sin. Because this is what sin is. It's denying that you know Jesus. And the Lord takes it seriously. And so should we. But fortunately, God's grace is greater and more powerful and broader and deeper even than our sin. And Peter's weeping bitterly after denying Jesus. He has no hope, but he does have one source of hope, and his hope is the words of Jesus. Remember Deuteronomy 8.3, man won't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that is all Peter had to live on and all he had to go on at that time was the words that Jesus had spoken to him. And it was enough. It was enough. Because what, what did Jesus say to him? He said, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What amazing promise and hope is in that word, those words. Do you notice small words in the scriptures are really important? Jesus didn't say to Peter, if, if you turn again, eh, I don't know about you, Peter. You may make it. You may not. I'm not too sure. You know, all bets are off. Did Jesus didn't say, if you turn again. He said, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Hallelujah. When you've turned again, there's promise in those words. Did Peter turn again? Did he strengthen his brothers? Have you read the glorious opening chapters of the book of Acts? Read them again if you haven't read them recently, and you'll see a man who turned again, a man who turned dramatically, a man who strengthened his brothers, a man who preached probably the most powerful evangelistic sermon ever preached, a man whose teaching and whose life became part of the foundation of the early church and the ongoing work of God. This is a guy who got a second chance. This is a man who turned again, and it was all because of five little words in uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 31. How was P Peter able to do that? How was he, was he really, did he turn over a new leaf? Was he really, really a holy person underneath? The reason he made it is Jesus said to him, I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. And if you're in, in failure or in sin or in discouragement or in doubt or desperation about something today, this is your hope and this is why you're going to make it. Jesus is praying for you. But does that make any sense logically? If you think about the Lord Jesus, you know, he's a pretty busy guy. 
He's in every atom and every molecule of this vast universe that he's created. Have you seen the images from the James Webb Space Telescope? They're so magnificent. If you haven't looked at them yet, you ought to. They're available, easily available. And even the astronomers who made that thing are amazed. Uh, they say that they can see galaxies that are four billion light years away from Earth and light that's that old and is just coming to the, to the James Webb Telescope now. And just as extraordinary things. And, you know, Jesus runs all that. You know, th these are not new images to him. He's seen this before because all those galaxies, he made them. And not only that, but he called each star and each galaxy by name. And he knows them. He leads them forth in his majesty. And uh, he, Jesus is a pretty busy guy. So do you really think he has time to pray for you? Do you? Not sure? Have you read that amazing and powerful and enlightening book that we call the book, of the book of the Hebrews? That powerful epistle, the book to the Hebrews. This is about the Lord Jesus and the amazing fact that he, Jesus Christ, who passed through the heavens, a merciful and faithful high priest, he, since children partook of flesh and blood, he did the same He's a, so he would be able to, uh, be in all things, be a merciful and faithful high priest. Hebrews 7.25, Hebrews chapter 7, I'm pretty sure it's verse 25. The writer to the Hebrews says this, that um, he, in becoming a merciful and faithful high priest to us, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. He can save forever, eternally, thoroughly, from the crown of your head to the soles of your feet. Jesus saves forever and completely those who draw, draw, near, draw near to God through him because he ever lives to make intercession for us. He's, he lives to make intercession for us and that's why we're going to make it. Think again, if you will, with me just for another minute or two about um, the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 10. You don't have to turn back there again, but Suppose that um, after the first time, after the sin of the golden calf, God had just wiped them out. He said, that's it. I've had it up to here with these people. I'm going to start over again. It crossed his mind. Read, that, read those chapters again. It crossed his mind. But instead, in his mercy, in his grace, he said, no, I am going to give them another chance. I am going to give them a second chance. He gave a second chance to them, and he gave us, as, as he did, uh, to Peter and to Paul and to you and to me and indeed to all mankind. He is giving a second chance and a fresh start. And I'd like to ask you to turn with me to one more passage. You got another minute to turn to another passage in the scriptures with you? Good, because we locked the, the ushers locked the doors so you can't get out anyway. So you really have no alternative. So Jeremiah 31 is where I'd like to ask you to turn now. Jeremiah chapter 31. If you want to cheat, if the scripture's up there behind me, then go ahead. But uh, I am going to turn to uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. And uh, while I am turning there, Jeremiah 31. This is a, a long chapter, but I want to get to as fast as I can in this little Kindle thing to Jeremiah 31 verse 
31. The God who gives second chances. Am I almost there? Okay. Because, you know, it wasn't just the children of Israel that needed a second chance. It wasn't just the Apostle Paul. It wasn't just you and me. In fact, all mankind is desperately in need of another chance because as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Psalm 14 puts it even more explicitly. He says, uh, there is none who does righteous. No, not one. They have all turned aside. They have all become worthless. There is none righteous, not a single one. All mankind needs a second chance. And God gives it even better than the second chance that he gave uh, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 10. And this is what Jeremiah prophesies, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This, as we know, is a covenant that's in the blood of Jesus Christ, offered beyond just the borders of Israel, but to all mankind. A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 32, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. Do you hear the grief and the disappointment and the woe in God's heart? I was a loving husband to them. They broke my covenant. What am I going to do about that? Do I have an, a, another plan? Verse 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after these day, those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is the ultimate second chance. This is the ultimate fresh start for us, for all mankind. Another chance. Precious promises in God's word. Where does God want to write his word? The children of Israel were told, taught to, read, to write God's word in lots of different places. They were taught to write it on the doorposts and the lintels of their houses. They, were written, they wrote it on scraps of parchment and tied it to their wrists and to their frontlets, uh, to their foreheads, to remember God's word. And as, those are good things. But there's someplace even better that the Lord wants to put his word and to put his commandments and to put the Ten Commandments. Do you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 10, the precious ark of acacia wood that Moses constructed. That ark, that precious, beautiful, but perishable acacia wood is your heart and my heart. And this is the promise in Jeremiah 31. I'm going to put my laws within them. On their hearts, I'm going to write them. And he says that um, they wanted to eat, even teach each other to know the Lord anymore, for they all know me. I will be their God. They will be my people. Their sin, their iniquity, I'm not going to even remember them anymore. Why? Because they live my law out from their hearts, out from those precious 
acacia wood perishable boxes. This is where God wants to put his law. The words of the Ten Commandments, written in stone, literally and figuratively, do not change. But where they reside does change. And through Jesus Christ, the Lord can put them right in here, right into your heart and to my heart, and can make a change that's lasting, that's eternal, a covenant that will not pass away. Where are you today in your spiritual life? Are you feeling successful and encouraged, or are you discouraged? Is there sin in your life? Is there repeated sin? Did you ever feel like if you, if you commit that sin one more time and go back and ask the Lord to forgive you one more time, he said, he'll say, that's enough. I've had it up to here with you. I'm done with you. You're gone. You're out of here. You conf- you've, you've done that sin one time too many. Isn't that amazing that the Lord always gives us a fresh start, that his mercies are new every morning? His faithfulness is great. And you know, I'm just simple and naive enough to believe that you're going to make it and that I'm going to make it. It's not because we're great people or we're, we're, we're holy people, because we're not. The reason that we're going to make it, there's, a, there's one reason only, and that is Jesus is praying for us. We have a mediator the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, he's praying for us. And he's able to save forever, completely, eternally, thoroughly, through and through, spirit and soul and body, inside that acacia wood heart, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for the word that you spoke to us uh, last week out of 2 Corinthians about your amazing grace and generosity toward us. Jesus, although you were rich, you became poor, that we through your poverty might become rich. And make, make me and my brothers and sisters here, Lord, people who sow not sparingly but bountifully so that we might reap bountifully. And Lord, I just want to pray for any who are here, myself or others, who who may feel discouraged and, uh, Lord, may feel um, the weight of sin and of failure uh, and of grief and woe and sin in our lives. And uh, Lord, we just, uh, we're like Peter. Lord, we're devastated. And Lord, we have denied that we even know you. And yet you have prayed for us, Lord Jesus, that our faith may not fail Lord, we want to turn again and to strengthen our brethren. And Lord, we see the amazing, powerful transformation you did in Peter's life. And uh, Lord, do that for, for me and for each of my brothers and sisters too.